Welcome back, dear listener, to the Life and Times of Warwick's Farm podcast. You might notice that I've changed the introduction rather than the uh, next chapter of the book I'm reading, my book Canterbury Tales, but to the Life and Times of Warwick's Farm because I've realised that I'm fast running out of book. So it won't be very long before I'll be given to ad-lib the whole period. So I thought I'd better start um, having heard of a practice. So, um, here we go. This week uh, has been another week of lambing. We've started our lambing season, and uh, it's uh, quite good fun in the mornings getting out and doing a couple of quick laps of the cycle around the around the paddocks and catching up with the the new little creatures. The uh, our main flock of mainly uh, Arapara crosses and Arapara sheep currently has about thirty ewes. Yeah, our, our Gotland pelt flock. Has about eight ewes, and so far the Gotlands have given us uh, two lambs. We have two very healthy, or one very healthy ram lamb, and another very healthy, just recently born, ewe lamb. Unfortunately, the ram lamb had a twin, a female, but uh, she was born on an absolutely cold, terrible night, and by the time we found her, she had already gone, which was a, a little bit sad. The Gotland pelt. Lambs are quite interesting. When they're born, they've got long, silky fleece right from the word go. Newborn, it's beautiful, long black fleece. Whereas the Araparas and the Crosses, they've got very tight curls. So far in the Arapara paddock, we have four ewes and two rams. Uh, and one each of the ewes and the rams are what we call panda lambs. So they're either born white with black spots or black with white markings. And so far this season, uh, the ones we have are two black ones uh, with white faces, which gives them little black panda eyes and white socks. One of them's got one long white top socks and three little short socks, which is quite cute. The only the only tricky thing about checking the lambs in the mornings is um, once you've run them down and uh, picked them up just to check that they're okay and just to check the sex, mum has run off. So you're left with a little lamb, which is all very, all very cute. So you only have it for a couple of seconds. You put it back on the ground, and uh, it's instantly bonded with you. So it presumes that the, the big creature next to it is the mother. So as you try to walk away, they throttle on behind you. So uh, now using my mountain bike, I quickly get on my bike, and uh, you can't just race away from them because they'll still follow the bike, and it's amazing how fast they can move when, when they want to. So you have to... Find mum, do a couple of slaps around mum to get uh, to get the little lamb in orbit around her, and then shoot off on a tangent, leaving um, leaving mum and the and the lamb reunited once again. Uh, anyway, we will begin today's reading of uh, of the book. It's called Steering and Shearing, and the first part is about these two uh, cows we had on the farm, and you'll very soon find out why we don't. Why we have never really had cows on Warwick's farm and probably won't ever again. Anyway, chapter 14, Steering and Shearing. The stock truck slowly beep beeped its way up Poultry Lane to the gate where we had the stock loading ramp we'd borrowed, waiting for it to be hooked onto the back of the truck. As he got closer to us, the smiling face of the burly trucky noticed a temporarily rigged up electric fencing and the two black steers standing grazing nearby. His smile gave way to a frown as he slowly shook his head and stated that he would give it 30 minutes and then he would have to be off. 
No worries, I replied. We'll have them up the ramp in a minute and you'll be away. A resigned, knowing smile returned to his face as he looked at his watch, but he remained silent. I could certainly read his his mind. Bloody lifestylers, he was thinking. Eighteen months earlier, or so, a friend had asked if we would like to buy a couple of his freshly weaned Angus steer calves, suggesting that we could sell one to the works to pay for the butchery of the other one, to give us some tender steaks and roasts for the duration. This was while I was still in paid employment, and before the barn was built and the extra fencing put in. What a delicious idea, I thought, as I began selling the idea to Elaine, trying not to salivate too much. It had involved a bit more work than I had anticipated over the period, as they transformed from cute calves to large, unnamed black beasts. Having large open paddocks in those days, we had to use electric fencing to allow them to strip graze, and that meant having to constantly supply fresh water to their temporary troughs, as well as regularly move the fencing. When the snows came, there was even more work, feeding out hay and rounding them up and returning them when the heavily heavily snow-laden fencing collapsed, or the power went out and they found that they were free. What kept me going, though, in the rougher weather, was the thought of char-grilled steak with Elaine's wild plum sauce. The day, though, had arrived, and we went to usher the black monsters into the truck. Walking behind the first one, we got on with gentle encouragement from a large stick, just about to the base of the ramp. He decided that there was soon to be nowhere else to go, except up, and he didn't do up, so he decided to take a detour through the electric fencing. Knowing that the stairs were used to staying within the confines of the fencing, we had decided not to heat it, not expecting them to take details, detours through it. We rounded him up for another go and put the fencing back in place, and to the amusement of the driver, repeated the process. They reckon the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, I must shamefully admit that we were classically insane that morning and only had to rethink had a rethink when the driver gave us our four-minute warning. By this time, I'd reinforced the electric with some lengths of timber and various other barriers, and we decided to try to stampede both steers up the ramp. The truckie by now was thoroughly enjoying the entertainment and really started to giggle as he watched us with blood-curdling cries charge towards the beasts and force them into a serious movement. They ran towards a single ramp neck-to-neck, not having time to look for a suitable spot to detour through detour through due to screaming, the screaming banshees that were assailing them. Before they knew it, they were at the ramp, and as one peeled off to crest the, the barrier, the other one hurtled upwards and onto the truck. The driver appeared quite impressed, and was still chuckling to himself as he headed off to the works with a promise to return the following day, and no doubt looking forward to sharing his amusing morning's experience with the boys back at the depot over a few beers. Next in the gate behind him, we went off to see where the other steer got to. Not wanting to endure a repeat of the morning's performance, especially in front of an audience, the driver would probably be selling tickets by now, we had a total rethink. We decided that while the sheep yards were far too small height-wise for cattle, with a little creativity, I could convert the one opening onto the lane to accommodate our steers, and then run them from it up the ramp and onto the truck. We decided to wait until Bruce returned from work to give us a hand with the now single steer, and I set about building the fortress. Later that afternoon, the cow folk were back on the prairie trying to round up the herd of one. He was now very wary and pretty nervous now that his brother had left him and very skittery. On our numerous approaches, he easily managed to break away further into the open paddock away from the gate. We had a new audience, the ever-watchful our packers watching in wonder from a neighbouring paddock. 
Doubled over, trying to regain our breath after another abortive attempt to run in the direction of the gate, we decided it was time to deploy the truck. The idea was that Elaine would drive the old Toyota Hilux and try to trap him in a corner of the paddock while I sat in the passenger seat with a lassoed rope, trying to lasso him through the open door as we ran, or when trapped, leap out and attach the rope over his head so we could lead him. It is obvious to me now that throwing a lassoed rope from a moving vehicle over the head of a moving animal is something that requires not just good skills but also a lot of practice, neither of which I possessed. Suffice to say that we were only left with the alternative of trapping him somewhere. On three occasions, Elaine, who by now was thoroughly enjoying the boy racing experience of bouncing across the paddock, throwing the wheel aggressively from extreme left to extreme right, and coming to whiplash-inducing emergency stops, had him, had had him cornered. On each occasion, I had leapt out, only to have him find a second wind and crash through the undergrowth or under a tree, twice leaving large dents on the mudguards to make his escape. We really thought we had him, though, when Elaine had him caught between the Toyota and a huge gorse bush. I attempted to open my door fully so I could get out, only to find I was also trapped between the vehicle and the gorse bush, and not willing to cr- climb through it, Elaine had to reluctantly reverse, calling me a chicken, and set him free again. For those of you who aren't to be aware, gorse bush is full of very sharp and nasty thorns. The next manoeuvre, unfortunately, brought us a whole new set of problems. Running him along the macrocarpa hedge along the side of Mr Thompson's farm, and with Elaine swerving in to trap him, the steer dived under the hedge and managed to bounce himself over the short short sheep fence and onto Mr T's place. Whoops. Bruce and I then spent the next hour or so furtively stalking our prey across someone else's farm. Elaine, I, I think, went to hide inside. We managed to keep him as close to the Warwick's farm boundary as possible, with the aid of a couple of six metre lengths of, pi- of PVC piping we carried as arm extensions. It was fine getting him close to home, but how do you get a steer across a boundary without a gate? We asked ourselves between puffs. We decided that if he could go one way, there was no reason why he couldn't go the other way. Memories of his brother's rush up the ramp coming back to me. Locating a shorter section of fence line very close to where Harry the Gotland sheep pushed under several years later, Bruce and I, forming a flying V-shape, gathered what was left of our remaining breath and with loud howls charged at him. He raced towards the fence and managed to straddle it, breaking a post in, the, in half in the process, but did manage to bounce back onto the Warwick's farm side. He was now in the paddock with our packers, which, while now on ho- home soil, was not a good place for him to be. Marshalling the last of our resources, we repeated our successful charge and managed to get the steer to repeat his response as he charged at the fence back to the paddock where where it had all started three hours earlier, once again breaking a fence post in the process. Taking a few steps away from the fence line, the steer crashed to the ground in an exhausted heap. And so did we, totally spent. That evening we cancelled the stock truck and arranged for the home kill guy to come round and take care of our quarry first thing in the morning. When he arrived, the steer was still resting where he had fallen, and didn't know a thing as he was dispatched by his unseen assassin, his tender meat all now rested and unstressed. The butcher promising to have our tasty meat cuts ready in a few days left us the steer's tail to be getting on with. I'm pretty sure that was a psychological thing going back to the caveman days, when the hunter returned home with the kill, 
that he had been stalking for days, but I swear that that oxtail stew we enjoyed that evening was the most mouth-watering, tastiest piece of meat that I have ever enjoyed. There are two major shearing events, well, major in terms of, small, of a small holding, I suppose, at Warwick's farm, which is when we shear the alpacas in November, and then the sheep closer to Christmas. Shearing alpacas is quite a different job to shearing sheep. It is a bit more specialised, and the animals are larger and more valuable, so more care is needed for them. We can take off close to 5 kilograms of fibre from our larger alpacas, like River and Shiloh, which is why it is important to get the fleece off them as early as possible in summer, once the AMP shows are over. The large stud boys can appear quite intimidating when handling them when fully fleeced, especially when walking them past the girls, who they want to party with, or the boys who they want to impress with their dominance. You have to have your wits about you as you guide them into the shearing sheds. Always makes me smile though, after they have been freshly shorn when I return them to their paddocks, wondering what I was worried about with the skinny little thing I am leading. Our alpacas are shorn lying on the ground, stretched out and restrained by ropes at their feet. Or legs, I should say. This way they feel safe and secure. At half time we change sides and and share the other side and then they are released when they are released to get up and enjoy their feeling of lightness. The only alpacas who ever take exception to such indignities, occasionally, are the studs. If anyone is going to squeal and wet themselves, you can guarantee it is going to be a boy. I sound as if I'm a seasoned shearer, when I am in fact a seasoned shearer's gopher, and general roustabout. We employ the services of a delightful couple, Ron and Cathy, to shear our alpacas. Ron has lived many lives, including being a sheep shearer for many years, and for the last decade or so an alpaca shearer. Ron, in his late sixties, is as thin as a rail and as fit as a fiddle, a real country gentleman who is always ready to greet you with his huge grin. Cathy, his long-suffering wife, whom he carts around the South Island along with his shearing and camping gear, sits on the alpacas as he shears and gives them a pedicure and checks their teeth and berates Ron for any slivers of fibre that he misses. Ron and Cathy live on a small farm in the breathtaking Catlins region of Otago, are in semi-retirement, but have for many years now combined their shearing business with music. Ron is a well-regarded country and western singer who regularly entertains at the Golden Guitar Country Music Festival in Tamworth in Australia and other events in New Zealand. We, as often as possible, conclude a long day's shearing with Ron and Kath staying in the barn and Ron serenading us with his guitar and repertoire of original and popular songs after a well-earned barbecue and a few cold beers. Getting the alpacas to and from the shearing yards, using the raceway, has made life a lot easier over the years. We run them down in groups into separate yards, all the girls together, the weathers together, and the youngsters with their mums. The studs we bring through after all the others have been shorn to save any nonsense. Our clever alpacas have learnt to put themselves back where they belong. Once shorn, they are released back into the raceway system, where they wait for their buddies, and then slowly wander back to where they came from. We then simply close the gate behind them, once the next yard's worth of alpacas are ready to be shorn. If only it was that easy with the sheep. The smaller flock isn't too bad, with Nova and her family and their Gotlands using the race to get to the yards. It is the larger flock of 30-odd black and coloured sheep and our paras and their crosses that we have the fun with. They are in a large five-acre paddock on the southern part of Warwick's farm, with a nursery stroke duck paddock between them and poultry lane, part of the race system. Part one of the exercise entails rounding up the sheep and getting them into the nursery paddock. I must look a sight 
racing around the paddock and my old bike, trying to keep the herd on in a block that tends to leak at both ends and run them through a small gate in a very large paddock. There's always one who wants to break away in the opposite direction and bring a couple of mates with him. Part 1 successfully accomplished. We move on to the more challenging stage 2, and that is getting them out of the nursery paddock and into the lane through a very small gate that only opens 45 degrees. The gate is in the middle of the huge macrocarpa hedge halfway along the paddock, barely recognisable in the shadows of the hedge. The trick I have learned over the years is to partition off the half of the paddock to the east of the gate and try to build a chute for the sheep to follow down and then through the gate. As the sheep enter the nursery paddock, they slow down and gaze upon the surreal mess I have made of the paddock. They are confronted with a, by a barrier made up of a short reel of wire net fencing attached to a rider on mower trailer, a large rusted out wheelbarrow, some handmade wooden gates and a couple of lengths of plastic piping. Alongside this monstrosity, on the other side of the gate, is a similar collection of paddock debris hoping to entice the sheep to funnel through the gate. It used to be a nightmare trying to stampede them through such a small opening and inevitably they would get stressed. And then as they got to the far end of the paddock, the arrow and arrow crosses would bounce over the fence and we would be back to square one. Now it is just a matter of slowly but steadily running them along the newly sculptured paddock barrier and gently through the gate and into the poultry lane which has been likewise barricaded to stop the running in the wrong direction or behind the chook houses. It is then only a short distance to the yards. There is always at least one sheep that loses the plot completely as we finally approach the yards and decides to circle back and try to retrace its reluctant steps back to where it came from. Hopefully I can catch it before it leaps over any barrier which then needs to be broken down so it can return and manhandle it to the yards. A large woolly beastie that does not want to cooperate can put a bit of a strain on an ageing body and I am ready for a bit of a break before the shearer arrives. As the shearer works his way through the two flocks, Elaine sweeps up the mess before Bruce and I manhandle another one onto the shearing mat and then we slowly but steadily fill the wool sacks, skirting the daggy edges of the fleeces as we go. Once the sheep is shorn, we all stand back as it leaps to its feet, feeling much lighter and a bit disorientated and charges around looking for the exit, which it duly finds, and joins the other skinny creatures in the lane. Recently we, we have begun using another shearer, better set up than the previous one. This four-wheel drive vehicle tows a trailer with what looks like a stage set up on it, and he parks it in the paddock alongside the yards. Using some mobile gates, he runs half a dozen sheep at a time into a holding pen next to the shearing stage, and then pulls one through the one-way swing doors. Shears it and then eases it off the back of the stage in one seamless motion. We collect the wool and quickly run the broom across the stage and it is on to the next one. We now find that the shearing is done in half the time and I am not afterwards groaning and complaining of sore muscle. It also means it only takes two of us to assist as well. Once the shearing is over and we gaze and wonder at the skinny, bright looking sheep with their variety of spots and colours, and then they easily and happily return to their respective paddocks in an orderly fashion. After a tidy up and the collection and storage of the fully laden wool sacks, we head for the cottage for a cold beer and a wine for Elaine and some nice roast lamb for dinner. And that concludes chapter 14. Uh, just a couple of things from the from that chapter. Uh, Ron, our, our packer shearer, is now retired from shearing our packers altogether and is now Enjoying a career as a uh, as a, a recor- recording artist. Um, I also mentioned that when the when we shear the, 
the sheep, the, the shearer releases them and they bounce around and leap in the air and they finally run into the raceway. Well, we had a, one of our um, pet lambs from, a, from Nova, in fact Nova, you've heard about in the previous chapter. When she was, when she was a young lamb, at the end of the shearing, we suggested to the shearer that he should shear her as well, which he then duly did. But unlike the other sheep who left into the air and race around like mad things when they were released, Nova just sat there afterwards, stared at us, as if to say, What the hell just happened to me? She was not happy. She slowly got to her feet and she stormed out. It was hilarious to watch. Uh, another thing regarding the chapter two, um, all that hassle of chasing those sheep around the five-acre paddock, which could take up to a couple of hours, me barking like a sheepdog on, my, on the old uh, mountain bike. Well, those days, unfortunately, in the last couple of years behind us, uh, we have uh, inherited a golf cart, and all of a sudden life is so much easier. I would just slowly sit around on my backside and within five minutes they're all rounded up through the gate and things are so much easier. Anyway, that concludes today's uh, podcast. Uh, don't forget, you can, um, you can visit us at warwicksfarm.com. Um, the Canterbury Tales, the book is available on most uh, online uh, book booksellers. Uh, if you're ever in the vicinity and want to come and stay at Warwick's Farm, you are more than welcome. Just drop us a line. And if anybody wants to just to say hi or, or drop me a note or any suggestions that I can use once the book finishes to um, podcast about, feel free to drop me a line at chris at warwicksfarm.com or you can do so through the website. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.